brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Well, here we go, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, just trying to keep our ship afloat in the rough and choppy waters of the vast conspiracy... And the sea is angry, my friends, because never before have we seen so many of our long-standing conspiratorial sectors of concern coalesce into such a robust bouquet of Orwellian nightmares. Eugenicists are running our national and global institutions of health. A sick care system that suppressed natural cancer cures caused the opioid crisis and has never addressed the life-draining American diet is propped up as our only savior. Tech companies who have been foaming at the mouth to roll out their overt surveillance and tracking programs have been given the green light. People around the world are told to stay in their homes, interactions are banned, and human contact is considered dangerous. Masks are the new normal. Neighbors turning in other neighbors is considered a noble act. Local independent businesses are shutting their doors as corporate behemoths in the big club gobble up market share. And now, dear people, we are bracing for some very scary and very real shortages of the food supply. After years of being pushed into system dependence and HOAs making sure everybody grows grass rather than anything that could actually save them in a crisis. We're in the eye of the storm in more ways than one, folks. But lucky for us today, we have the man who knows the plan, Christian Westbrook, better known as Ice Age Farmer. He's been delivering intellectual ammunition and self-sufficiency strategies for quite some time now on his website and YouTube channel under the same Ice Age Farmer moniker. He knows the food supply, permaculture, and corporate power grabs like the back of his hand, and I can't wait to dive into it. A much-needed sage of self-sufficiency, the king of crops, and a true thorn in the side of the ag tech machine, Christian, my man, welcome to the higher side. Well, thank you, Greg, for that delicious introduction. <laughs> I try. And man, I am a huge fan. Super glad we could make this happen. I expect it to be one of the best shows that we've had in quite some time. No pressure, of course, but <laughs> an episode focused on the coming food shortages, as well as advice for decentralizing the food supply and doing our own part is very much needed right now. And you were doing this stuff long before our current COVID crisis. And I want to acknowledge that. 
Can you kick us off with a little about how you came to find food as your major focus and why you were sounding the alarm even before all this coronavirus stuff happened? I sure will. Let me first just say, I want to thank you for your work. I've been a fan of the Higher Side Chats for years now, and so I'm honored to be here, and it's it's awesome. It's also, I'm thrilled to be here because I know this audience already has a deep knowledge of reality and an insatiable intellectual hunger for the truth, and you already went through just a litany of things in your intro that I think exemplify that in sort of the scope, the totality of what we're dealing with and have to process. It's just massive. We're going to need both that background in reality and that intellectual hunger today. Food is definitely something that's, I think it's fascinating in general, but also it's very much a linchpin of this totalitarian agenda that we face. And you can tell that, you know, they're pretty open about that. When you look back at quotes like Bertrand Russell saying, diet injections and injunctions will combine to make, you know, sheep that can't revolt against the mutton. I think we're familiar with the quote, but right there at the front is diet. And then you can hear Henry Kissinger say, if you control food, you control the people, right? So they're, they're very clear that this is at the forefront of their minds. And so it became clear to me that it was sort of underrepresented in the conspiracy world, in the discussions of what's going on right now. And yeah, I think that's really come to, so to speak, to fruition throughout this most recent crisis. The cryptocracy has been working on this vector, though, for a long time, even though we're really only getting visibility into sort of the late stages of the food agenda. And it's actively today now boiling over into this hot war over the food supply. You know, we see very visibly the meatpacking plants shutting down and the burger places that don't have burgers. It's now suddenly pretty in your face that there are problems with our food supply and with the supply chain. And as we have governors like Inslee in Washington, who's actively trying to shut down smaller farming operations and impose social distancing on all sorts of parts of the food chain that is just not pragmatically possible and probably financially impossible for those small producers. What that is, is a shutdown of food. They are actively trying to engineer a food crisis. And so I think this is very much where we need to put our attention. Over these last few years, I've been sort of monitoring the progress of, I think we'll talk about today, the grand solar minimum, the fact that our sun has entered a lower state of output, which throughout history has implied that there are problems with, I mean, there's a number of things from increased volcanic and seismic activity and differences in the growing seasons and precipitative and temperature extremes. All of these things conspire to make it simply much more difficult to grow food. And so for this reason, there are famines and empires fall throughout history when the sun falls into this state. So I've been watching, to your question, I've been watching very carefully the effects and the very real crop losses over the past few years that have been mounting. And in my opinion, really, this last season got to a point where they couldn't just paper over it anymore. You can print the money, but you can't print the food. And so I think this really forced their hand in a number of ways. And that's part of the reason why things are just so balls to the wall this year in terms of the totalitarian agenda. Mm. Yes, a lot of great stuff. And I'm glad you mentioned the cycle because I think that's actually really important. Thanks for the kind words about the show. As we talked about through email, I am really hoping to pack a lot into this one. And when a guest has a good grasp on the conspiratorial history in their field, I love to try and highlight the road that got us here. And before the Gates Foundation had a finger in every Orwellian pie, it was the Rockefeller Foundation. 
and we've talked about their involvement in Pavlovian public education, in suppressing energy alternatives to oil, destroying public transportation in America, and what we've seen from petrochemical-based Rockefeller medicine and all the more natural remedies they suppressed. But we haven't talked much about the Rockefeller and elite family investments in the national food supply and big agriculture. And there are a lot of parallels with these other sectors when it comes to Rockefeller food too, right? I mean, how did we get here? Yeah, absolutely. And what's funny is they are more than happy to openly talk about their intense involvement in agriculture. If you go to their Rockefeller library, there's a page on agriculture that says, quote, today it's nearly impossible to imagine the global transformation of agriculture without the Rockefeller Foundation. So they, they're more than happy to put themselves out there as responsible for whatever this transformation that they're describing has been. And of course, they would color it a nice one. You know, we genetically engineered better yields and insect resistance and things like this. But in actuality, as you allude, it's much like the takeover of the medical system where good, wholesome, holistic healthcare was supplanted with the petrochemical. You know, they, they just came in and bought up all the med schools and replaced these things, called them quacks. And in much the same fashion, this has happened with the food system, where traditionally there are heirloom varieties of food that, that is, it's very much part of our culture. We pass these seeds on to our children and to our neighbors, and it's part of who we are and what we eat. And those seeds over time have been consolidated into fewer and fewer hands through a series of mergers and acquisitions into these now, these uber giant seed companies. There's only three or four left. You know, one of which is Syngenta, which is owned by China. So our food supply, you know, because it comes from seeds, is very much at risk. It's a monopoly over these things. Rockefeller got more and more involved after 1928 when they started sort of toying with, with agriculture under their science division. But it wasn't until World War II that they really said, oh, it turns out food is a really important way to control people. And so we're going to launch in 1943 an extensive ag program and really make this a priority. Ever since World War II, they did that, and then they also used the USDA to sort of increasingly weaponize that agency as a way to export their toxic Rockefeller agriculture to the rest of the world, so that they could in turn be just as dependent on these chemicals, these inputs, the fertilizers, and the Terminator seeds as we are here. Mm, that is some great context, and you read some very eerie quotes earlier to kick this off. I don't know if you recall the predictions of Lord Birkenhead, but I've heard you talk about this before. They're pretty telling, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And so, again, it's always stunning how open these people are about their agenda. You know, Malthus was pretty open about it will be food that is the constraining resource in the future. That means we'll have to have population control. And as you bring up, Lord Birkenhead was a statesman in the UK. He was one of the leading, you know, one of the head head honchos of the UK. And in 1929, he did this publication in, believe it or not, in Cosmopolitan, which apparently was around back then. He spoke to a few things, you know, the whole premise of the article was, it's 1929 now, let's look at what the future will be in 2029. And he speaks to a couple of things like genetic engineering, and the internet that are pretty prescient. And he has a couple misses, but in there, he really gets into agriculture and how it will soon be demoted to a thing of the past, nothing more than a hobby for the rich people. 
And the way that he envisions this happening is through a couple of things. He says, first, on proteins, we will definitely find a way to take a nice parent piece of meat and then put it into a nutrient solution and just have a cell-cultured, lab-grown meat thing that you just reach in and cut off a piece of it whenever you want. And again, this is 1929 when he's talking about this. Fun. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> fun. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the other thing he mentioned, and what's fascinating, Greg, this is just happening this week, is a, a startup just got a round of funding to explore a new kind of genetically engineered microorganism that does the nitrogen fixation. So it fixes nitrogen from the atmosphere into the soil. So rather than having to, you know, buy anhydrous and nitrogen and all these things and add fertilizers to your crops, you just inoculate your land with this weird nitrogen fixing bacteria. This is another thing. This is why it's so crazy. This is happening now that the billionaires are funding this new startup that's working on it. And that is yet another thing that Lord Birkenhead saw, you know, nearly 100 years ago. So what it is, is these billionaires, the so-called philanthropists, are pushing their resources and their social capital all in the direction of this agenda. That's why they're able to make manifest the things that Lord Birkenhead was writing about 100 years ago. I mean, he did not mince words when he said agriculture will be a thing of the past. And in fact, he also said this, which I think is very telling in the way that it sort of reveals how these powers that be, how the elites, whatever you want to call them, think about the rest of the people. He said, to date, the cities have been a parasite on the countryside. You know, we have to bring in food and we have to bring in resources. But in the future, science will allow us to invert that paradigm. And we will have indoor vertical farming indoors in the cities that will produce enough food for any number of people. And we will feed the countryside finally. And it's fascinating to see that Luciferian inversion of reality. It's built into their agenda. It's built into their dreams. And so, yeah, it's been... A number of people, Lord Birkenhead was just sort of one of the more interesting to talk about. But also when you look at, you know, any of the dystopic pieces of fiction out there from 1984 to Brave New World, it's always synthetic food in these weird worlds of the now not too distant future. Soylent Green would be another one that's worth mentioning here. These artificial scarcity and then fake food. That's fundamentally what they have been promising and what they are now delivering. Hmm. Yes, the old flip it and reverse it plan. And I'm glad we could fit in some of that historical context, but we got to dive into what's happening now. We are hearing the warnings of a food supply shortage. Wendy's ran out of hamburgers, as you mentioned earlier. Meat packing plants are stopping production. Tyson took out an ad to tell us all that food shortages were coming. We saw what happened with the toilet paper dry run. What's your assessment of how bad this could get for people and their access to food? Greg, to answer that question, I guess I would frame it like this. When we hear about the army of tens of thousands of contact tracers and the immunization passports, the digital known traveler ID, all these things that are being floated right now and still sound a little too extreme, right? It still sounds a little outlandish, taking people from their homes and children being quarantined away from their parents. It just sounds awful, right? But for these Things that are being proposed, and even today, you know, Inslee is out there talking about these things in Washington. For that to make sense, for it to make sense for these things to be being floated, even as it seems like it feels to everyone right now that things are sort of calming down and hopefully we'll get back to normal, but that's not the case at all. For these things to make sense, there will have to be, you know, a second wave, which Bill Gates is calling pandemic two. And it might, this is when I look at the food situation. I think it may need to get pretty severe for these 
propositions to actually start to sound reasonable. If those are reasonable responses, then the crisis that gets us into that mindset has to be pretty big. Now, I don't think it's going to be a complete collapse. This is why I'm careful to call this situation a limited collapse of the food system, because you know, if it was a complete collapse, then they would lose control, right? That's the Sholstevsky. If you take away everything from a man, then he becomes free again. So I think that they don't want to shake things so far up that they lose control and it just goes completely out of their hands. So I think it's going to be a limited collapse that creates this illusion of scarcity that they want people to have so that they forfeit more control. Mm, yes, a controlled, limited collapse. I agree. And You've been talking about a lot of the evidence that this is exactly what they want, that these food shortages are being engineered and they're making a lot of choices that compound the problem. And there's a lot of telling details when it comes to that specifically. But what are some of those things that you've been looking at that suggest this is no accident? This isn't just incompetence, as is often the scapegoat for these kind of operations. Yeah, thank you. It's not just me making this up. Again, they're totally open about this. Most people by now are familiar with the Bill Gates-funded Event 201, which predicted the pandemic and dictated how governments would work together to silence you know, misinformation and a number of things, all of which have gone into practice over these past eight to 10 weeks, whatever it is now. And I just want to point out that there was also a George Soros-funded simulation called the Food Chain Reaction Game that actually John Podesta himself was involved in. And this food chain reaction game, like Event 201, was a simulation of the idea that given a number of problems like climate change and an event, a pandemic that shook up the supply chain, that there would be food shortages and that they would require global governance to, you know, the same sort of solutions we saw from Event 201. We'll need global government, we'll need total control of resources, and we'll have to make sure to take more and more control away from people. So it's very much something that they have pre-scripted like the pandemic and have in the cards here. You can also see the pieces on the board. They've been pre-positioning things so that as these food shortages come and get more and more severe, then a lot of the things that would need to be put into place are already there, like the purchase limits on meat and other items in stores, the rollout last year of the fake meat products, to lots of fast food establishments. Twitter just last week changed its policy and explicitly banned people from talking about food shortages, saying that you know this could be cause for inciting a riot. So that's the excuse they use. But you don't ban people from talking about food shortages unless you're trying to keep the lid on this. So I think there's there's a number of things that indicate that's the way we're going. But yeah, to your question more about what are the things that they're doing to aggravate the situation and to ensure that we experience the food shortages? It's both within the companies. For instance, Tyson was seen to be moving infected or exposed, I should say, exposed workers. When they shut down one infected meat plant, they just took the exposed workers from that plant and sent them over to the next one. And so if there was any <laughs> epidemiology going on right now, that would be a complete no-no, right? That'd be ridiculous. It'd be laughable on its face. But that's what they did, and that ensured that one after another, these meat plants were shut down. And some of them have reopened, and that's partially because of Trump's administration's executive order that said they had to reopen. But that XO said it has to reopen subject to the CDC guidelines. 
which means that they have to have social distancing and a number of other provisions within those meat plants. So even though they're, you know, the headlines say, oh, the meat plants are back open, well, they're still operating at 70, 75% max capacity. And we can't just perpetually live, you know, it's like the limited reopenings that we're seeing right now where restaurants are only allowed to have 25% of their seating capacity. It's like, that's not a profitable business at that point. And you can't feed America when you're running your plants at 50 to 70%. That's where we are right now. And Governor Inslee, his name is just really fresh on my mind right now because it is he that's leading this charge to apply those same restrictions that we just described on the meat plants to everything. And so he sent home all of the seasonal workers from Washington that usually do the apple harvest. And apple, of course, is Washington's like number one cash crop. So their economy is being decimated by the fact that there's no one there to harvest things. And then even more concerningly, going forward, because of what he's citing was pressure from United Farm Workers and other workers' rights groups. For some reason, climate activists have become really involved in trying to shut down agriculture. And so he has yielded to them and said that, yes, we need to, in the name of protecting workers, which I'm all for, but in the name of protecting workers, we're going to shut down these small producers and make sure that they're not able to harvest any of their crops unless they go through some very onerous you know, restrictions and social distancing and these sorts of things, like I said at the top, that aren't pragmatic in a number of settings. So all of these things, if we don't do anything about them, virtually guarantee that we will be walking into food shortages, not just the meat, that's just the beginning across a number of different crops. Yeah, that's a great breakdown. And it's something I've said for a long time. There's just some things, food in particular, that can't be national, let alone global. You can't have corporations controlling that. It must be local because the things they do to preserve meat and fruits and vegetables just so they can get them halfway across the world and sitting on the shelf for two or three weeks as they're not supposed to do naturally. I mean, those things are bad for us on top of the genetic engineering. It's just something that must be local. Unfortunately, you know, sorry, Walmart, it just doesn't work otherwise. And one example of that that I've heard you talk about is over the last few years, Tyson Chicken bought out all the small chicken producers, bought out all the independent farms and then closed. Like now they close. So it's like it didn't have to happen if you wouldn't have had to monopolize chicken, then we wouldn't have one person being able to shut down the national infrastructure. That's exactly right. And it's another example of that competition is sin sort of approach where we just come in and we buy up all the, the medical schools and then there are only our doctors going on. So yeah, they came in and sucked up all of the meat production over the last years now. And even as they've done that, they started investing in fake meat and in lab-grown meat and plant-based meats so they bought up the meat production that was real in the United States and started investing in fake meat. And now they're, yeah, now they're the very center of shutting down the engine that was feeding America. And, you know, we mentioned that's Tyson. Smithfield is another one of these big meat producers, and they're owned by China. And they've retooled all of their factories to take hogs and just freeze those carcasses and ship them off to China. And so we're having our food extracted from this nation, especially our protein is just being extracted systematically. Even as other countries around the world are starting to shut down exports in the name of, you know, feeding their people, where there are crop shortages and failures around the world, especially with the virus complicating supply chain issues. You've seen 
Countries like Vietnam shut down their rice exports, and they're the number four producer. We've seen Russia shut down their wheat exports after they hit a certain quota. And so to be in the United States, where we're now tripling year over year our pork exports to China, who's supposed to be our enemy, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. And this, again, speaks to your point of, is this really being done on purpose here? Absolutely, it is. Absolutely, this is an agenda. Yeah, every draconian clampdown in our lifetime has been under the guise of national security. And you would think that a foreign nation controlling our food supply in our country would be like red flag number one if national security was really something that they were truly focused on. You would, but the food chain reaction game put a script out there and we are now following it. We're forcing that outcome to manifest. And you know, it's funny, there's just a couple of weeks ago, the UN put out a new report called Food Crises 2020. And it echoed language directly from that food chain reaction game, which is just, it's, I think they actually do this sometimes as like a wink to each other or a little bit of a tell, some of that revelation of the method, maybe. That report said that, you know, this outbreak of coronavirus, plus a, a dangerous increase in nationalism and protectionism could spell biblical famine globally. And those are the United Nations words, not mine own. But to blame then, as they're walking through all of these steps that we're outlining, to then blame nationalism for the food shortages is really just, it's astounding. But just as the World Health Organization grafted some of that language from Event 201, I believe it was, quote, no one organization or country can solve this. It takes a global governance, right? Verbatim, the who, you know, Tedros was out there echoing those same words straight from the, literally from the homepage of Event 201. And now again, we see the language echoed from Food Chain Reaction Game to the Food Crisis Report. So yeah, it's, they are following the script to a T. It's a plan. Yeah, that really parallels the pre-9-11 report that we need a new Pearl Harbor. I mean, this is a exactly. tale as old as time. This is how this stuff is done. And they keep doing it this way because we never seem to stop them when we see that it is pre-planned. It just doesn't seem to have an effect. So it's like, well, why uh, why change course? But uh, in terms of the data that indicates a shortage is coming, one of the things that I found quite scary that you've talked about is the euthanizing of livestock in mass, like by the hundreds of thousands and the destruction of eggs because there's just no one to get them to market. There's no one to break down these animals and, you know, get them to the grocery store. So they're just killing them in mass. I mean, how much is this really happening? And what is the timeline between the processing of an animal in our factory farm system to it being in the grocery store? When should we start to see somewhat empty refrigerator lockers in the in the grocery store because of this euthanasia? Yeah, it's a really important question and a good one. And the alarming answer is that it is a matter of days. There is an infrastructure for freezing meats, but most of that is owned by China. And so most of that frozen capacity gets sent off. There's only really a few days pipeline in between, you know, most of the meat in the supermarkets is fresh. And that's why it only took a couple days in between when we started hitting 60% of our pork harvesting, our pork slaughtering output for the U.S., for those things to manifest as real shortages in the stores. 
And unfortunately, you know, I wish I could say otherwise, but unfortunately, it is quite widespread right now. And to your question of how real are these mass slaughters? I think the number I saw this morning was that we're up to 10 million hogs that have been euthanized in the best case, right? In the most humane case, that's how they were disposed of. And it's also true, pigs are hit the hardest because unlike a cow, you can't just put them out to pasture and sort of hold off. Pigs have a pretty tight 11-month pipeline to where you've got the next batch of babies coming in to your farm. And so if you weren't able to get your fully fed, full weight hogs and take them off to these meatpacking plants because they're shutting down, then you've got no place to put your babies. And a lot of farmers, producers were forced to then make a tough decision. Do I just get rid of this current generation and just take the loss? Or do I kill the babies and then I'll have a loss in the future? And maybe I'll just hold off of hope that they open these plants. And the longer they stay closed, the more this is going on. And it's, yeah, you're right. It's a terrible situation. Mm. And I know you're also somewhat plugged into the farming community. And I'm curious what the little guy on the ground is feeling right now. A lot of what we talked about so far relates to big factory farming, major corporations, large operations, which we both agree something needs to change there. We're pointing out the reasons why, but many people rely on it. So it does need to be there until we can phase it out. But the farmers themselves, I understand much of their income is from exports, which is definitely in flux right now. And if they have a local infrastructure at all, well, Costco and Walmart are open, but not the local farmers markets in a lot of cases. So that's got to hurt them too. What are you hearing from the farmers themselves? What insights have they been giving you? Yeah, so the demand shock of all the restaurants and school cafeterias shutting down and sort of all that demand shifting and then those distribution channels no longer being exercised has had a horrific effect, as you might imagine, on producers across the world, but especially here in the US. It really depends on what they're producing. So but like specialty crops like onions have been brought in from Canada for very cheap prices. And that has meant that there were millions, literally millions of onions were just going to waste in one video that I shared. And it's not good. Farmers have been in a tough situation for a few years now. And then that was exacerbated, you know, both by the solar minimum and the effects on the growing seasons, but also by the trade war and then all of these corporate pressures. And that's why farmer bankruptcies were already hitting a relative high going into this year. And so the pressure was already at a pretty bad place. And so this is just popping that bubble. And there's just going to be a number of producers who are not able to get through financially this year. And then, of course, we're entering a depression as well. So all of these things are conspiring to mean exactly what they wanted it to mean, which is the end of the small farmer. It's going to be a rough year for farmers. Oh, man, it's quite scary. I get a little anxiety when I listen to you talk. And one thought I had was that when restaurants and schools closed, that a lot of extra food would be there because they would be taking a huge chunk out of the demand with those closures. But as you say, I guess that sudden shock probably hurts the production chain more than it helps. Right, because then those, you know, we've seen those hundreds of thousands of gallons of milk have been dumped instead of going to schools. We've talked about the euthanizing of animals because the meat plants have shut down. But where those restaurants were sourcing food, suddenly there was no place to deliver them. And one of the things that's really frustrating on top of all of this stuff is just that the red tape, which may have made sense in some bureaucrats' mind during years of plenty, 
but it's still applying. And so there have been situations where like restaurants that already had food delivered, but then were forced to shut down, tried to open up just like a curbside stand and sell their vegetables that the restaurant had already purchased. And I think it was a matter of hours before the LA health department came by and said, "Uh uh-uh, no, you can't. You're a restaurant. You don't get to sell groceries like this. So the red tape is another example of the state really exacerbating the situation and the fact that the USDA mandates all these inspections and requirements. Again, things that may have made sense in the past, but when you're in a crisis situation, and we are right now, then you just have to see very clearly where you can cut through that red tape and try and connect producers and consumers so that both can survive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it really makes me angry because the couple of local taco shops that I really like, a couple of local little sandwich shops I like, they've really struggled. They've been going, you know, you never know if they're open or closed when you go there, but yet the McDonald's drive through has never shut down. It's never stopped serving people. Mm-hmm. And that's like known to be like poor quality food. It just doesn't make any sense. And the local paper here did a story about Grubhub and Postmates and that stuff. And some businesses are struggling just to pivot to that delivery model. But even if you can, the report showed that these apps are taking a huge chunk, a huge margin from these small businesses. And we already know the food industry, the restaurant industry, it's very tight margins. Mm -hmm. So for Grubhub to take, I don't even remember what it was, 30%, maybe more. It's insane. It, It just can't work. And again, it's like, Surprise, surprise, a tech company comes in and reaps the fruits of human labor. I mean, that seems to be the game for Silicon Valley is to come in, co-opt our systems, and then everyone is like struggling to pay their rent, but yet working in this great new app system, this great new gig economy. That's right. Welcome to the smart cities where we have perfect surveillance and perfect knowledge of everywhere you go and everything you do, and we control every resource that you get. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. (laughs) It's messed up. And I've also heard you talking about situations where the military and National Guard are starting to get involved in managing or guarding the food supply right now. And that's a scary level. It is. Yeah, the National Guard was tapped to help distribute food at various food pantries where they were worried that security would be an issue and they just needed help moving these things in a secure fashion. So they were employed there. Arguably, the scarier thing is that the government is now Throwing around these words, well, let me start with China, because during the you know February, March timeframe, when China was very much in the thick of their outbreak, the state issued these edicts that said, guys, we have to get our rice in the ground. We have to plant during this planting season or else we're all going to starve, right? So they were actually thinking about these things and trying to get ahead of it. And in some cases, the communist army did go in, the PLA did go in and take control over some of that rice production, because again, they had to, that's it, their lives depend on it. They have to make sure that they produce this food. Such a thing is not going on quite like that here. It's more though that words are being thrown around like supply control. And this is a scary word to see. It's not a free, <laughs> not a free market concept, obviously. Right now it's being described as a fed cattle set aside program. And that basically means that they're asking producers to feed low calorie food to their cows so that they grow more slowly. But that really, I mean, that is taking control over how much product, fundamentally, that's taking control over what you produce. 
And so that's why they call it supply control. It's like a nice name for the government taking control over food production. And I think that's the bigger story even than distributing food at gunpoint. Yeah. Man, we've talked about poultry. We've talked about eggs, talked about the meat industry. I also heard you mention a little bit about fish and that 80% of seafood is coming into the ports and then getting shipped around. And these ports are closed. And the ships that are out there doing the fishing in a lot of cases are shut down right now. There's another snowball effect waiting to happen just with seafood. Which is stunning, yeah, because there's a lot of seafood, there's a lot of fishing done domestically. But then to see that the bulk of that is sent offshore, I mean, it's just like our hogs, I guess. The bulk of that is sent offshore to be cleaned and then packaged up and sent back in. And so that's not happening now. We don't actually domestically have the facilities to take, you know, a fish and then turn it into fish pieces. Apparently that's been sold off in the name of globalism. And to see that 80% of our, yeah, I mean, this is, it's just across the board with our protein production hitting hard. And we were already seeing words thrown around called global protein shortage before this crisis even existed. I just want to keep emphasizing that we were having real food problems before coronavirus ever reared its head. This is just the story that we're seeing now. But you're right, 80% of fish requiring those ports and those ports are closed down, some have reopened. But in fact, just this morning, there was a report that the Chinese are frantically buying anything they can get their hands on especially true of in the food sector, because of concerns that, I guess, with the second wave, that ports around the world will close down again, and that the supply chain issues will compound even further. So yeah, it's a very real concern. Yeah, they're just throwing fuel on the fire. And I've had a lot of guests who have expressed this perception that it seems like the agents that the cabal has sent out into the world, they're just not getting things done fast enough. They're not having the results that the masters truly demand of them. And that in a lot of cases, they're just discarding their pawns, maybe the people like the Clintons, and they're going straight to the tech industry because they're like, tech can do this better than our people have been trying to do it. The Green New Deal isn't necessarily going through as they would have wanted it to. So we're seeing some operations fail or we're seeing a lot of skepticism to adopt their operations. And it seems like they rolled this one out just to be like, okay, we need to gain ground. We're supposed to be, you know, maybe 10 years further down the chain and we're not there. So we're going to do this thing and we're going to speed everything up across the board. And I'm really starting to feel like, especially in the food area, I'm seeing that too. I'm feeling that perception. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this was a way of morphing a lot of things where momentum had been lost. And now it's just a mad grab for power and pushing all these agendas ahead. It's like when Al-Qaeda ceased to be scary. So ISIS emerged, right? And so now we're seeing the same sort of thing. Climate change and Greta just wasn't getting the traction we needed. And so now we have this virus. And somehow they just happen, you know, the <laughs> the safeguards against the virus, the social distancing, all of these things just happen to be almost one for one mapping isomorphically to the climate change agenda, the, the global warming nonsense. I've been saying that for a few weeks, but I think just in this yesterday and today, Greg, it's really the mask has come off. The Pope just today said, you know what, now that, now that the world economy has been completely imploded, we have this terrific opportunity to rebuild a less capitalistic, more equitable 
system that won't trash the entire earth into a pile of rubbish. Mm. And so he's sort of floating that idea. And then just yesterday, so even before the Pope had the opportunity to offer that cover fire for him, again, Jay Inslee in Washington announced a $1.5 trillion, that's with a T, coronavirus green stimulus package. And I want to be pretty deliberate with the way I say that there. It's a green coronavirus stimulus package. So there's your Green New Deal. It didn't get sold. Like you said, they couldn't sell it with that skin of climate change on it. And so they've had now to decimate the economy and then wrap this thing as a stimulus bill to get it across. And he's pretty open. He didn't, it's like a roundtable with Bernie Sanders. In fact, I've got his quote. He says, quote, we should not be intimidated when people say, you can't use this COVID crisis to peddle a solution to climate change. No, we have to recognize the necessity of this moment that this will allow us to rebuild our economy and jumpstart it with the green stimulus package. It was a necessity to do this before the COVID crisis, and now it's an absolute requirement to rebuild our economy. And we can't be intimidated by Republicans about this. Hmm. Problem, reaction, solution. Exactly, exactly. To take people's jobs away from them and to shut them in and destroy the economy and then say, oh, by the way, we've got these $1.5 trillion over here, but you're only going to get them if you follow our script, right? If you are printing, if you're making your insect proteins, if you're a rancher and you've got cows, <laughs> good luck. You're not getting any of our $1.5 trillion green stimulus dollars. You're going out of business. We've talked about ending animal agriculture, and it's happening. Sorry, buddy. But if you're an insect farmer, here you go. Here's 10 million. Go make it happen. In fact, they just we said they just gave 10 million dollars to the bacteria and genetically engineered nitrogen fixing bacteria startup. And so this is what they're doing. They've killed off the old economy and they're funding only the projects they need. And I can say that with absolute certainty because Christine Lagarde over at the IMF was talking about this for the last I don't know 18 months or so now, but in February she really came out and said Look, we have to make climate change absolutely central to the way that the ECB, the European Central Bank, conducts its business. We need, as central bankers, to be very deliberate with how we can help the world deal with climate change. And what she's saying is quite clear. We're going to stop taking away money from anyone that doesn't, you know, that's not green, that doesn't further our agenda. In fact, one of Inslee's aides actually went so far as to say, we're going to jumpstart the economy, but we got to do it in the right way. And that's away from petrochemical companies. So yeah, this is what they're doing. They're going to starve out the economy that they don't want. And in the rubbish there, they will stand up their new green, sustainable, and we all know that's code words for Agenda 21, control. And just as they're going to starve out people, this is the way they're working right now. But you're exactly right. Where they had stopped making progress, they've just sort of rebranded and now they're pushing ahead mm -hmm. yeah and i've always said that i kind of live my life with one foot in and one foot out of the system and for a long time you could just be a say revolutionary walking amongst the commoners and you couldn't tell but now everybody's got a mask so the rebels you can spot them out quite easily and it seems like this is an attack on those people with one foot in and one foot out because now they're squeezing us to where you either have to go be a hermit in the woods or you have to acquiesce to everything from vaccines and a national ID and social crediting and 
5G, I mean, and the smart cities, as you say, you kind of have to either live in the system and be a good little soldier of it, or you got to get out completely. And this is the squeeze. I mean, this is the the area that I've been kind of living in for so long. And it's definitely getting harder to to have that balance. It's near impossible at this point. Well, I would, for one, I just have to say, I think you've been doing a great job with your show. And so even if you're one foot in, one foot out, you're absolutely fighting for the home team here. But I think you're right. There are a number of people who are well-versed in what's going on in the world, but have sort of just, that's been sort of like a nighttime study thing or a hobby, or it's the world's crazy, but I'm still going to go to my job by day and sort of be a normal person. We can't do that anymore. Like you said, this is the end of that. All of us have to go all in or else we will all be walking into these agendas and they're wholly spelled out. They're open and shut right now. It's all going on. And it's going to take all of us working against this to stay free. It's true. And the advice that you've been giving that I like most is that you've been telling farmers that they need to shift their businesses to the locals, typically in this direct-to-consumer system that we've been seeing more of. But this is also great advice for the rest of us, too, not only to seek out those local food solutions, but also to lend our skills and helping them pivot to that model, helping them make a functional website, help them with marketing, logos, or distribution. There really is no talent that can't apply to pivoting a business in a new direction. And we can make ourselves useful to farmers right now in a lot of ways that could help create the relationships to help us weather the storm. And we have to, right? That's the only thing that will restore the backbone of our food system is if we support these farmers and ranchers, these producers, who, as you say, very much need our help right now. We should all be growing as much food as we can. That's just a, a good common sense thing for everyone to do. And then, yeah, there are unique skills and experiences that we each have that we just have to bring to the table right now. Like you said, the webmaster can help the farmer get online. There are lawyers who could help draft legislations at the local or county or state, whatever level we can, right, to get in and make sure that the path is open there for farmers to sell directly to consumers and push back against this constantly encroaching corporate global state. There's a number of battles that need to be fought by all of us right now. So yeah, it's going to take us all. It's true. And I wanted to get a little deeper into what you call ag tech in the second hour, the Orwellian merger from hell. <laughs> but things like Amazon buying Whole Foods and some of the vertical integration techniques that the food companies have implemented as part of their overall situation. I mean, that's pretty important. You've touched on a couple of these things, but I guess one example, Amazon buying Whole Foods. It seems like they took over a brand that was known for organic, high-quality produce, and now they're going to revolutionize it with Amazon-style shallow practices that'll probably, I would assume, leave things pretty nutrient-deficient, and we'd be getting the same slop crops from Walmart, but under the label of Whole Foods. And of course, the tracking and the controlling of who gets what is in play seems like preparation, if you ask me. Well, that's exactly right. And it only took a year after Amazon bought Whole Foods for Bezos's other investments. He has many, many investments in fake meat companies. Most of the billionaires do. 
And then Bezos is also one of the main funders of these indoor vertical farming startups like Plenty, which I think he's got multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. They've got billions of venture capital funds across all of their investors by now. And so within that year from their acquisition, suddenly Plenty's indoor vertical hydroponically grown produce finds its way into the shelves of Amazon. And the impossible, the bleeding burger finds its way into Whole Foods as well. Yeah, it's astounding. So you're right. They are attempting to buy up as much as they can and consolidate perfect control over that entire vertical from the seed to the place where it's grown to how it reaches you and the market you buy it in. They want total control over your food because they want total control over you. And there also are some weird patents I've heard you talk about. I don't know if you can recall many of them, but one of them was apparently a Walmart patent for robot bees, this kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Walmart is another example of a company that's trying to compete with the Bezos vertical. They have built dairy plants themselves, which is part of the reason that Dean went out of business. They built a meat processing plant. So they're just making sure that they own every aspect of the food that they're trying to bring to market. And part of that were these, you know, on the surface, it just sounds ridiculous. Like who's ever going to use robotic bees to pollinate their crops? But when you see what's going on here, they're moving towards indoor farms and there's problems with honeybees. So it makes sense. Walmart patents indoor robotic bees to pollinate their crops within their indoor vertical farms. It's just a technocratic nightmare that they're standing up. But that's it. They want to own seed to mouth. Yeah. And another bullet point I had in this little section is the Gates Ag One plan. I think this is something you talked about where it comes to Bill Gates talking about exporting this system that they're building here, this complete automation and vertical integration control, outsourcing it to the third world. And this is always in the cards with these kind of plans, but this is something that the Gates Ag One plan seems to be about, right? Absolutely. It's taking, in fact, Gates and the Rockefeller Foundation have worked together hand in hand on this. So like we said, Rockefeller was exporting, especially using the weaponized USDA as leverage, their toxic petrochemical dependent agricultural practices to the rest of the world. And so as the progression has continued, you know, we had GMO. And so there we needed to push those out to the rest of the world. And so there was the Rockefeller green revolution that helped to usher these GMO terminator seeds into the rest of the world. And of course, we've heard about Indian farmers that are committing suicides in mass because they don't have seeds to plant anymore. It's just they've formatted over the way that things were done and ended fundamentally their way of life. It's really awful around the world to see these practices and this dependence exported out like that. So Gates then did another a green revolution too. And now, as you say, Gates Ag One is the latest endeavor where they just <laughs> throw another billion dollars at it. And in their founding statements for Gates Ag One, it says, we were concerned that these technology advances weren't finding their ways into the hands of farmers in undeveloped countries fast enough. And so it's just like you said, they keep getting frustrated. Someone's pushing things to happen faster and faster. And so Ag One is this most recent thing that they've started throwing a ton of money at it, and they're trying to do gene sequencing over all of the heirloom seeds that indigenous cultures around the world have grown since forever. So that's their lifeblood. Like I said, when you've got this seed, and when you save your seeds, they learn and grow from the seasons, so they, it's part of who you are. 
And so Gates' foundation is coming in, effectively scanning the genome of these heirlooms and then doing some slight manipulations to, you know, looking across all the things they get, doing some slight manipulations, and then boom, here's our product, we patent it, and now we've got a product that we can sell out to the rest of the world and replace these heirloom seeds. So it is a a land grab over the genetic landscape of the biosphere of Earth. It's really just a really crazy power grab over God's domain. And that's a scary thing to see. Yes, Christ, man, I can't breathe. <laughs> Another thing I've heard you say in terms of keeping it positive, look, we have compassion, community, and nature on our side. What do they have? They've got toxic chemicals, nutrient deficient crops, frankenfood, and terminator seeds that won't regrow. We are better positioned than we realize. The abundance of nature is right there to be tapped for us. And their system, their system based on monopolies, it does not work the same way. And it takes a lot more energy and effort to shove it down our throats. So it's actually a silver lining to, to be like, hey, look, nature's got our back. We just need to, uh, I guess, ask for help in that Stephen Greer way. Just ask the system and it's right there, ready to lend a hand. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, I just saw Governor Cuomo was aligning with both Bill Gates and Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Alphabet, to roll out the programs you were just talking about, where they have Bill Gates now taking over New York State's education system and the medical records. So they are, they're moving ahead full bore on this agenda. And it is one of darkness and lies and terminator seeds and fundamentally of death. You're right. So to know that we have all that is good and natural and God on our side, yeah, I think is one of the most reassuring things we can remind ourselves. Absolutely. Man, this has just been a lot of fun and we are kind of getting down to it. And obviously we didn't talk about if there is a virus or not to even be worried about. But when you see all these gears and levers working so symbiotically with it so soon, so quickly in the middle of all this chaos, it definitely makes me skeptical. Mm -hmm. Certainly a pandemic, whether or not there's a biological agent. Yeah. Right. Well, awesome, man. You killed it today. This is much needed information and we're lucky to have you keeping an eye on this stuff and being so good at explaining what you're seeing. Let me have you tell the people about your website and some of the tools they'll find there. There's a lot of good stuff. The wiki that you're setting up, the crop loss map, very interesting. What should they know? Sure. Everything can be found at iceagefarmer.com. It has been the hub for the tools you just mentioned, which were mapping out the crop losses to sort of show that there was a global pattern of massive multi-hundred million and now multi-billion dollar crop losses. All of that has played out now that exports are shutting down. That was before the virus. And then there's also a tool on there called the GDD tool, which is the growing degree days is a measurement that growers will use to show how much heat was available to a plant and can be used as a metric to gauge how much growth can happen there. So if you need, you need heat for a plant to grow. And something that was very interesting in this area of it's always the hottest year ever and you know global warming, blah, 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 was there was a massive precipitous drop-off between 2018 and 2019 growing degree days measurements across the U.S. And so I got that data set 
and then I made it available at iceagefarmer.com slash GDD so that you can type in your zip code and then see directly how much year over year, how much less sun you got. And I thought that was pretty insightful to just to combat that global warming narrative that it's always the fiery hothouse oblivion. No, it's actually, we're getting cooler right now because the sun dropped off. Yeah, and then the latest thing is thevictoryseed.org, which is really me trying to, you know, icehfarmer.com was just all this information and trying to equip people with the knowledge and tools that we need to be on the same page when we even have an informed conversation about how do we respond to these threats. But thevictoryseed.org is the latest project which says, you know, just as we've heard America could never be invaded because there'd be a gun behind every blade of grass. Well, we just mentioned, Greg, that the weapon that they're employing against us is food. And if that be the case, then what we need is a victory garden in every house behind every blade of grass, right? And so that's why the victory seed org is there to encourage everyone to plant as much food as you can right now. And as these food shortages become more visible, and as the economic damage becomes better appreciated, and generally as time rolls forward here, more and more people already, in fact, are starting gardens, and they will be looking to anyone, to you, namely, for the knowledge and the skills and the seeds and starts, if you have them, to help them bootstrap their own food production really quickly. So for example, I've got just tons and tons. I'm tired tired of planting and watering them, but I want so many potatoes in my own hands that as my neighbors come to me and say, hey, in fact, someone was just here before we had this interview for some sunflower seeds, and I'm so happy to share these seeds. It's not like I feel like someone is taking seeds from me. No, I feel like someone is going to grow something on my behalf. Like I feel like we're enlisting more support for team grow. And so thevictoryseed.org is all about growing food and sharing the seeds and getting other people to spread that message. Nice. Team grow. I like that. You should lean into that. That should be brand number three. (laughs) Um, But you got a lot of great stuff on thevictoryseed.org, even talking about, like you said, potatoes, because those are specifically high calorie, low square footage, pretty easy to grow produce. And and I think that's really important too, telling people what to grow and how to grow it and what's going to yield the best bang for the buck. You definitely don't want to be growing asparagus right now. Don't get started with that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. No, and potatoes are nice also because once they're done, you can just leave them in the ground. You know, you don't have to take them out and preserve them. You can just take them out when you're ready to eat them or when you're ready to go plant them next year if it's been that long. Jerusalem artichokes, also known as sunchokes, are another one that I like for that same reason. If you take them out of the ground, then you've only got, you know, a couple weeks before they start to mold or whatever. But if you just leave them down in there, you've got food. You've got a pantry in the ground. And if you can imagine that people might be coming around if there are food shortages and they're looking for hoarders or preppers or stuff like that, well, if your food's in the ground, that's about the safest place it can be. So when we talk about potatoes and sunchokes and all of these root vegetables that you can come harvest later in the year, I think that's pretty attractive. <laughs> yeah, screw burying gold, silver, and cash. Just plant some food. Yeah, you can eat it, yeah. I like it. And uh, any other resources to leave them with? I'm hoping that people can find their own local farms and food sources and crop share boxes. But do you know of any national websites or databases for local farms? 
Definitely. There's a site called localharvest.org, which has a nice map and you can sort of look for any producers, whether that's, you know, people that are, have goat dairy to offer or their organic orchards or you picks, whatever it is, they're able to put a little listing on there. And so you can go quickly see small farms and producers around you and then be sure to go give them a call or stop by. I promise you, they all need support in some way or another right now. Everyone is trying to figure out this new reality that we find ourselves in and figure out how to stay in business. And so it's absolutely worth reaching out. And, you know, if you don't do websites or you don't do the law degree, you know, like we talked about some of those ideas, you can just show up and say, I'd love to help you on your farm, which, again, that's probably help that they need, especially if we're not able to get seasonal workers. It's probably experience that would be really valuable to see an existing working organic farm and spend some time there is really one of the best ways to get a crash course in how you can grow your own food. And so, you know, just reach out and just go offer to, to help out for a couple of days and maybe take a, a CSA box home as payment. And that sort of plays into this idea of supporting the local economy using the barter system or the skill sharing, anything that is getting off of the beast system into these untrackable transactions. Sometimes it's called counter economic activity, but I think we'll have to emphasize that a lot more going forward. I agree. Well, man, I had a great time talking to you today. Keep doing what you do. We can do shows about the hollow earth and aliens and cloning centers to keep people entertained once in a while, but it's these shows that I think people should follow through on the most. So thanks again and take care out there. All right, Greg, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Cheers. And boom goes the dynamite, dear people. Ice Age farmer, Christian Westbrook, the man who knows the plan. So happy to get this one out to you guys. I'm sure it's going to resonate with a lot of people and be exactly the kind of guest a lot of you were hoping for right now. The permaculture shows are pretty popular even in peacetime, so I would expect it even more so now. Christian lays out a lot of good reasons to be concerned, but he also keeps it pretty positive, a difficult tight rope to walk. I kind of rushed this one out because I want you guys to have advanced notice of any potential food supply issues, and I was a bit worried it would happen in that five to seven days between recording this episode and getting it out to the world. But either way, it's sound advice to say, hey, dig into what's available in your area, use that website localharvest.com. If you're anywhere in the Midwest, go back and listen to the Peter Allen episode from last year, I think it was. He was great, and he owns Mastodon Valley Farm, and he ships meat boxes pretty much anywhere in the country. But the shipping is a bit sketchy as far out as California. But if you are in the Midwest, let's get our meat supply from one of our own. There are a couple farms out there using a similar name. His is MastodonValleyFarm.com. I already talked to him recently, and he said that he's getting a ton of new customers, which is great, but that's how a THC fan in the Midwest should prepare, I would say, if he's still taking new people. I mentioned before that I've been doing Butcher Box for the last couple of years. It's a monthly meat delivery box. It's a pretty big company, and it is grass-fed, but I heard that they get their meat from New Zealand and just all over the world. It's not really a problem, but it's also just not really as local as I'd like it to be. 
But the point is, a buddy of mine was kind of sensing this sort of shortage potential in the air, and he tried to sign up, but they are full. So it's a waiting list only now. And I also mentioned on the show in previous episodes that my birthday, which was March 25th, was the first real gathering that our friend group had to cancel. That's just when it started to feel pretty real, because we never did that for swine flu or bird flu, etc., etc. Way back in March, of course, we had no idea where this whole COVID thing was going to go. But to cancel that first event, it's burned in my mind, and I spent my 35th birthday securing local produce, and local protein from independent farmers around here. It's just a weird experience I'll probably always remember, but I'm glad I did it. It's already been beneficial, and the place that I have a meat supply through is actually also not accepting new people, as far as I know, so I got lucky there. I guess my point is to not wait until the last minute. Not only should you secure a food supply now, but you should make yourself more than just another name on that list. I've been talking to the guy that I'm going through now, and he's awesome. We talked about THC. He might even be a guest in the next month or two. I need my meat, you know what I'm saying? But in fact, right after I recorded this with Christian, Joe Rogan even had a guest that made very similar points. It was episode 1478. His name was Joel Salatin, S-A-L-A-T-I-N. If you liked this episode, follow up with that one. People have problems with Rogan, I get it, but I like to celebrate the good stuff that people do. I mean, Bill Maher had a vaccine critic on. That's a good thing. But regardless, just know that the largest show on the planet raised these very same food supply concerns. It's been heard by over 5 million people. Also, trending on Twitter the other day was the end of meat is here. I was really shocked by that, but it just shows you that people are aware. But I like being able to say that I have a local, decentralized, uncorporatized food supply. Whether or not Walmart has meat in the cases is not really relevant. And I think we should all be the same way. We have enough listeners to this show in this country That if we all actually did secure a local food supply, many, many farmers would feel like they have secure partners in their local area. It's a beautiful win-win. Then we don't even have to worry about it, because maybe it won't be that bad. I think Christian is pretty convincing. I think he throws out really great data points that show that there will be problems. But it's possible that you don't end up seeing an issue where you are. But that really has nothing to do with the fact that making this change is a good idea for a whole host of reasons. But Christian is great at what he does. His website and YouTube channel are very much things to put in your rotation. He's been mapping crop shortages on his map all the way back to the fires last year. So his finger is very much on this pulse and well in advance. But that said, I hope you're all safe. I don't want to act like the sky has fallen here, but when you see some warning signs, get ahead of it. I feel like my responsibilities got a bit heavier this year. As we turned the corner of 2020, I definitely didn't think we'd be having a food supply conversation before summer. And I know THC can be a contradiction sometimes because we 
Might do some fun out there sort of epic shows about things that are probably not that relevant to your life. And then we swing all the way over to something like this. And I don't really think that's a problem. Our listeners are surely intelligent enough to hold both of those things in their head and appreciate both. Because I can do it, and I'm nothing special. But if you only heard the first hour of this interview, and you liked it, please sign up for THC Plus and hear the full two-hour interview. Not only this week, but every week. The archive is vast and interesting. You can download the MP3 files in full so that if and when you cancel, you still have them. Unlike Netflix or Hulu or almost anything else, your forum membership, also lifetime. You know, I'm trying to make it easy for you. The RSS feed works with all the main podcast apps out there. And I think we're good for each other. <laughs> so help me help you, thehiresidechats.com. In fact, I just saw that if you use Podcast Addict and you look at the show notes, there's a button right there that says support. It'll take you right to the sign up page for plus. Bada bing, bada boom. You get the new RSS feed and you're right back into Podcast Addict when you sign in. But this episode does wrap up the month of May for us. We started with the ever humble Stephen Greer, talked to our old pal Crow, had the return of Recluse, got a little quantum biology lesson with William Brown, and then had a food supply breakdown breakdown from our man, the Ice Age Farmer. It's a good month to be a Plus member. Otherwise, you missed five hours of THC with these guests. Think about how much you liked the episodes you heard. And then think about how there's just as much more waiting to whisper sweet digital nothings into your ear until the whole thing falls apart. But with that, I love you guys. Keep listening. June should be pretty great as well. Until then, I've done my part. Your move, ag tech tyrants, corporate frankenfood forcers, and engineers of the coming controlled collapse. Your fucking move. Plans are simple. 
The best protection of all is the special shelter built according to specifications of your local civil defense organization. The basement of any house or building will become a good improvised shelter if you block the windows with sandbags. If you don't have sandbags, just what can you do? Bunker, take it under. You'll find me in the bunker, bunker.